You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? (laughs) You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome to episode 73 of Distilling Theology. I'm Eric, back with you guys again after a long while, and I'm joined, as always, by Blake and Justin. We have a special guest with us today. He is a pastor. He is an author of numerous books, uh, too many to name here, but they include The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom, and his latest brand new book, Crux Moors in Ferry, A Primer and Reader on the Descent of Christ. He's also written two books that are relevant to the subject we'll be discussing tonight, God Without Passions, A Primer, and God Without Passions, A Reader. You may know him from such distinguished and groundbreaking podcasts as Distilling Theology. He is Samuel, the manual on... (laughs) Dang it, that didn't work. (laughs) I love it Where was I going with that? Where was I going? He is Samuel, wrote the manual on Divine Impassibility Renahan. Let's go with that. (laughs) Hey, Sam, glad to have you back, man. Thanks, Eric. I didn't even know that was my full name. <laughs> they say if you can name something, you have power over it. So you you must have power over me, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we did find out in the uh, patron section of last time you were on that we are BFFs. Yes, this yeah. is true. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> there it is. That's wonderful. Thank you, Eric, for taking the lead. It's funny, Justin. Every time Eric's on, we just like, hey, how about you run the show? You it's know? great. It's awesome. Just it gives it us off. a little break, you know, people, people come for the mustache and they stay for the theology, you know? That's it. And if you're not on Patreon, you didn't get to hear me screw up the intro, the first go at it. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's it took true. took me a second try to get it. That's a, your reminder, folks, to join us on Patreon for exclusive <laughs> bonus content. And uh, no, we, we've been really enjoying uh, the last couple of weeks getting back into theology proper, picking up uh, parts four, five, and now part six from... Uh, you know, last year when we had parts one, two, and three back in May. So, you know, just keeping it, it's with the season, I guess. It and uh, to that end, Justin, what's in our glass tonight? Uh, I'm excited. It's been a while since we've had just a nice, good bourbon. So uh, we're dipping into Angel's Envy straight bourbon whiskey uh, that is, of course, bottled at 83.3% ABV. Are you sure about it? It is not bottled at 83.3%. No, you got it wrong. <laughs> No, it's, I didn't. It's, it's 43. 43. 43.3. <laughs> 93. That's 86.6 proof. There we go. Uh, that would be crazy. Uh, man, can you imagine? It'd it be like drinking motor oil. A, it wouldn't be a whiskey if it was bottled at 43. <laughs> That's it. Whatever you said. Oh, 80, you said 83%. 83. Oh, yeah. uh, it is blended in small batches of 8 to 12 barrels at a time, typically aged up to six years, and finished in ruby port wine casks for three to six months. It also Not has one proof. of the most gaudy bottles of any yeah. <laughs> whiskey. Um, how, let's let's really quick talk about the bottle. Who who likes it? Who doesn't like it? Who? I don't feel like anyone can be indifferent about this bottle. That's it's, fair. It's unique. <laughs> That's for I, sure. 
Personally, I like the difference because I've seen so many of like the same kinds of shapes. So I recognize it immediately because I'm like, oh, yep, there it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I like the attempt at uh, originality. It's actually kind of nice to hold and pour out of, but that's true. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I'm it was drinking designed for like, ergonomics, Eric. I feel like I'm drinking pouring. perfume or cologne when I grab the <laughs> bottle or something. It's, just, it's a little weird, but I like the attempt at originality for sure. There was an attempt. <laughs> it's funny. And, and uh, our guest, Sam, you're the one who, uh, who picked it. What do you like about this whiskey? Well, uh, it's one of my best friend's favorite bourbons and mm. I have it. I enjoy it with him. And so I decided to try it with you men because I thought that your discerning palates could tell me more about it than I know myself. I mean, so uh, I enjoy it with a cigar from time to time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it has a sweetness. I mean, really, you should just talk about it. I'm going to embarrass myself. Uh, it's kind of like, you tell me what I'm tasting. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, last time we, we did this and we talked about Johnny Walker Double Black, I was thinking, I never knew this about, you know? So I, I appreciate the way you guys really know what to say and how to describe, how to put words to all of the complexity that comes with drinking a whiskey or, or a bourbon. So I would I would just push it back to you and say, I like to drink it with a cigar. It has a sweetness to it, but you can really help me express further what is the the quality or the notes of uh, of this bourbon. You know, it's funny. I was going to say the exact same thing about you and uh, some of your colleagues in in the topic we're about to be speaking about tonight uh, and being able to bring these dense theological concepts to us and, and distill them down for for the lady. So thank you. It, it sounded like you said for the lady. Yeah. I know you said for the laity, the laity. but the way the you laity. said it, it sounded like said for the lady. You know? We have a patroness. You know? The patroness. Yeah. Well... On that bombshell, Blake, what are you getting on the nose? I almost get a little bit of cherry note, which feels a little strange to me, but that's kind of, I'm seeing that kind of, I'm getting, it's not the first thing, but it's the first thing that I was like, that's interesting. Well, there's definitely like a, like a, like a toasted maple syrup action going on. Definitely maple syrup. Yeah. Yeah. Vanilla. Vanilla. Vanilla, there's there's a custardy note to it for sure, almost with almost a whipped cream, like a cool whip. But um, it's it's really rich. Um, there's not a lot of spice to it, but the spice that I get is more kind of like a cardamom, like a chai tea. Um, yeah, 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 spice yeah. in the background. And some butterscotch, like butterscotch pudding in there. Mm-hmm. You're saying words I like. <laughs> <laughs> like those butterscotch, uh, like uh, after you've had one of those candies and it just kind of sits on your teeth for a while and you taste it later. Yeah. It's like that. Is that, were those the Werther's original? Werther's, or yeah. yeah. We've talked about those before. Yeah, mm. it's it's really rich, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm seeing more of those notes now as, as we're talking through those. You know what, there's some banana. That's what it, it's like, a banana... Um, on the nose of banana custard. Sam, you're not supposed to drink yeah. it yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Eric. Hold out. <laughs> Hold on. No, cleansing. It's funny because I'm always drinking before we actually are supposed to. So. Yeah. Party foul. Yeah. 
I have to find a new set, new set of sound effects to the show. Listen, I feel everyone. like three fourths of our guests do that. They just, as soon as we put it up to <laughs> our nose, they're just like, Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Cause no, it looks like fair. we're about to drink. I should Sam, warn them, fair. Blake. Sam, yeah. what do you get? Come on. There's no wrong answers. I'm getting that banana note, by the way. It seems, it seems to me more floral than fruity. So I don't know about mm. banana, but. I could see it um, kind of like a baby's breath, a really light floral or like maybe a carnation kind of floral. What about tulips? <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, that's what it is. Definitely tulips. You're contractually obligated to that answer. <laughs> Oh, well, wow. We already have a bunch of questions going on the uh, on the YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> we could we could talk about the, the theology behind a, uh, a name like Angel's Envy. Oh, <laughs> well, let's Ooh. taste it because we've been sniffing for a while. We have been. We have been. All right, gentlemen. Cheers. OK, it's more fruity than I anticipated. There's a little bit like a ripe fruit. You know what I'm tasting, Justin? Better not say it. Fig oh, I was going to say no. it. Dang it. No. You took, I was going to say it, Blake. <laughs> oh, no, Eric. but in all, in all actuality, well, I'm glad you're there to I back would, me up. There's, there's a little bit of fig in this. I, I would say there that. is actually some fig. There's some, some, uh, yeah. Dried stone fruits, mm-hmm. um, you know, creamy vanilla, mm-hmm. a little bit I'm of little even bit, chocolate. I'm a little bit upset at Eric because there wasn't any banana in my bourbon until he said that. And then there was some banana in it. And I don't want any banana in this bourbon. Oh, so s- say there's no banana in it and it'll take it away. Well, I mean, there's, there is no banana. Nobody put banana in the bourbon. Would it be bourbon if they had Just say the words. It? There's no banana in it. Oh, thank you. I mean, there's banana notes oh, that I'm getting on the flavor. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I, I would say steer clear of uh, all Jack Daniels stuff for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jack Daniels like tends that. to have a banana note to it. And, yeah. and some some Woodford. I get it on Woodford sometimes. Yeah. No, this is real tasty. This is smooth and gentle. Smooth, my favorite whiskey descriptor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very enjoyable, very drinkable, dangerously drinkable, I'd say. Especially yeah, it's, given the It's very the clean. It doesn't have an overly long finish, mm-hmm. um, but it's also not, it's, it's not bitter on the finish in any way. There's not too much oak. Um, it's just nice and sweet with, you know, a lot of dried fruits, a, a touch of, you know, nutmeg, cardamom, baking kind of spices. There's almost but like a hint of Madeira at the end there, too. That might be port or yeah. the Madeira. That <laughs> <laughs> might be port. But yeah, no, I I, agree. I love yeah. Madeira. No, yeah. I, I agree with you. Same. I see what you're, you're saying. I'm just giving you a hard time. But um, <laughs> yes, do it's, it. It's one of those where the finish yeah. dissipates very quickly. Yeah. In a way that it's so dangerous because I'm like, oh, I don't taste it on my palate anymore. And I go back for sip after sip after sip. And before I realize it, oh, there goes my glass. Like, it's just one of those really easy, easy drinking mm-hmm. um, summertime kind of whiskeys. Oh, yeah. 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 I'm excited. I could see why you pair this with the cigar. Now I want a cigar with this. So <laughs> I'm going to have to or pipe or pipe. But that's fair, dude. Before we started this, uh, my wife told me, she's like, you know, if you want, you can just smoke a pipe in the office tonight. And I was like, ah, I'm just going to be, I wish I did now, <laughs> but <laughs> next time we'll just have to, we'll just have to do this again. We should also yeah. Sam, before we dive in, there's a, there's an important question that needs to be answered. <laughs> oh yes. It's, it's, it's in regard to uh, a particular controversy, uh, controversy that's been all over distilling theology uh, <laughs> for the last 
several days, I'm a week. Well, by the time this comes out, it'll, it'll be several old news. Um, but we need to know, are you pro or anti-Fig Newton? Well, okay. <clears throat> when I was growing up, <laughs> if it was like, okay, we had lunch. Now it's time for our dessert. And they were like, here's some Fig Newtons. I'd be like, yeah, that's it, man. I don't want that. That's not dessert. So it always seemed to me like a substitute a for something better like and an unacceptable one. And you don't even know what it is. It's like, it looks good, but it's not. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So my child self is answering this question. I haven't had a Fig Newton since... I was probably six or seven years Wise old. Wise choice. Wise you know? choice. And I'm not going back. Yeah, <laughs> Who likes? Who's going to defend Fig Newton? Like you can <laughs> like it, sure. Blake over here loves Fig Newtons. No, you can like it, but who's going to like stand on that hill? Like I have one flag to plant, <laughs> and it's getting planted on the Fig Newton hill. Well, Blake's not the only one. Carl Truman would too. Absolutely. Yeah, spend a couple. Yeah, spend spend, spend twenty minutes. Oh, so the tea theology. drinkers. I see. Yeah, yeah it's the tea drinkers. <laughs> No, it's it's the like Presbyterian half the group. tea drinkers. I made a joke about this. It's like distilling theology can talk about gender roles and and uh, patriarchy, egalitarianism, complementarianism, and be sage. We can talk about baptism. We talked about theonomy and didn't have a, a, an uproar. But we talk about fig newtons and everybody goes to war. <laughs> so you know, it's a strange. We, we had, it was called Newton priorities. Yeah. Priorities, people. It happened. What aisle do you buy them in in the grocery store? <laughs> The garbage aisle. <laughs> oh, really? Like, if I wanted to go get Fig Newtons, like I'm not exactly sure know. where I would get them. Cookie aisle. They're, they yeah, the they're cookie, not cookies. They're cookies, not cookies. Snack they're aisle. But I think yeah. that's the aisle they'd be in. It's like Ninja yeah. Fruit. It's like in disguise. <laughs> I, I said they're kind of like, cookie, but it's not. I said they're kind of like they were failed pastries, so they classified them as a cookie because nobody liked them as a pastry. <laughs> it's oh, like man. a pop tart without any frosting. Yeah, it's it's like a dry <laughs> pop tart with sand filling. in the middle. <laughs> it probably Whoa. helps you go right. to the bathroom. I think it. I think it's time to. <laughs> I think it's time to uh, it. to pass yeah. on this conversation. <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> All right. Shall we? Uh, shall we open in some prayer that we desperately need and and move For towards sure. uh, our sure. topic? Prayer tonight from The Valley of Vision, published by Banner of Truth, comes from page 12 and is titled The Mover. O supreme moving cause, may I always be subordinate to thee, be dependent upon thee, be found in the path where thou dost walk and where thy spirit moves, take heed of estrangement from thee, of becoming insensible to thy love. Thou dost not move men like stones but dost endue them with life, not to enable them to move without thee, but in submission to thee, the first mover. O Lord, I am astonished at the difference between my receivings and my deservings, between the state I am now in and my past gracelessness, between the heaven I am bound for and the hell I merit. Who made me to differ but thee? For I was no more ready to receive Christ than were others. I could not have begun to love thee hast thou not first loved me, or been willing unless thou hast first made me so. 
Oh, that such a crown should fit the head of such a sinner. Such high advancement be for an unfruitful person. Such joys for so vile a rebel. Infinite wisdom cast the design of salvation into the mold of purchase and freedom. Let wrath deserved be written on the door of hell, but the free gift of grace on the gate of heaven. I know that my sufferings are the result of my sinning, but in heaven both shall cease. Grant me to attain this haven and be done with sailing, and may the gales of thy mercy blow me safely into harbor. Let thy love draw me nearer to thyself, wean me from sin, mortify me to this world, and make me ready for my departure hence. Secure me by thy grace as I sail across this stormy sea. Amen. Mm. So good. Absolutely. So, Justin, what are we talking about tonight? Well, Blake, I'm just glad that in our notes here you actually put the, the correct confessions about time. Well, last week, minute. you know, two weeks ago we read from the Westminster, so I figured, you know, it was time to... I balance. read from the Westminster. Come on. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of divine impassibility, which I'm really excited about. We touched on this a little bit last week, uh, so... Or was it two weeks ago? Two weeks Whatever ago. Whatever it was. Check it out. Go listen to it. To start off, before we get into any, any intense definitions or anything of that nature, we will just read from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, Chapter 2, Article 1. I will start. The Lord our God is but one, only living and true God, whose substance is in and of himself infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. So there's a lot there, obviously. And if you if you don't have one, go to reformstandards.com, check out, you can see all the verse references here uh, as well, follow along. But it touches on immutability and impassibility, and why don't we have the expert give a little definition on what those two things are, immutability and impassibility? Sam, take it away. You have the reins. When we talk about uh, immutability and uh, impassibility, we have to, as you said, define our terms uh, very carefully. And immutability is a, is a negation. It's the negation of mutation in God. So to ascribe immutability to God or to attribute immutability to God is to deny. It's a negation. We are negating all mutation or change in God. So to put it very simply, immutability is God without mutation or God without change. And impassibility becomes, in a sense, a subset or a related doctrine to immutability. Impassibility is another negation 
and it is God without passions. Now, if we say God without change, we, we understand change, but God without passions, we often don't understand what passions are. And so therefore, it's hard to understand what impassibility mm-hmm. is. Immutability, God without change. Impassibility, God without passions. And that's the way that our confessions put it, is God without passions. So when we talk about divine impassibility, we're saying that God is not acted upon and cannot be acted upon uh, in any way by anything. And so if you want to understand passions and God being without passions, it's helpful to think in terms of agents or actors and patients or receptors. So an agent is someone who who does things. They're an actor. And the patient is the one who receives the actions of the agent. Well, now think about me. Think with me. Think about me. <laughs> think with me about the word patient. The, the spelling of the word begins with P-A-T-I, pati. And that is from the same Latin root as passion. And it comes from Greek before that. But a passion is something that a patient experiences. It's an undergoing. It's a happening unto. It is something that you experience. A passion is something that you experience as the result of an agent working upon you. And so if we say that God is without passions, then we are saying it is impossible that God would ever be the patient of an agent. There is no one and no thing that could ever act upon God in any way in order to change him or affect him or to mutate him in any way. This is why it's related to immutability. Uh, Immutability is that God cannot change in any way, and impassibility is saying nothing can act upon him to make Mm -hmm. him change in any way. Mm -hmm. Nothing can can make God the patient of its agency. And and if you just think about for a moment, okay, who— who are all the agents involved that might make God their patient? Well, it's all the things that God created. <laughs> can, can the created thing uh, overpower the creator? Can the created thing in some way exert an influence that would change the great creator that, that made it? Uh, and so impassibility is God without passions. God is always the agent, never the patient, nor can he be the patient. It's not just well, it just so happens that God is always the agent and never the patient. It's that God cannot be the mm. patient ever. He is always the agent. He is incapable of being acted upon, nor does he even act upon himself. Uh, he doesn't change himself. Some people have made immutability. Uh, they've related it to God's sovereignty, and they've said, well, God's immutability means that he is sovereign over himself. And so nothing changes him, but he does change himself in relation to creation. He changes himself in relation to his people and things like that. That is not biblical, confessional, classical Christianity. Uh, Immutability is not a subset of sovereignty in in any way, shape, or form. Hmm. Uh, Immutability and impassibility are part of the doctrine of of God's being, his essence. Hmm. God's essence is immutable. His essence is impassable. Um, it's And so to just come back to where we started, you need to think of those two words, immutability and impassibility, as negations, and then think about the negation. Immutability negates or denies mutation, change. Impassibility negates or denies 
passion and undergoing of receiving the agency or the action of another. And so <laughs> it's a lot of words to describe these concepts, but one of the reasons why we have to say so much is because it's it's a doctrine that has that has been tr it truly has been neglected uh, mm -hmm. if not mistaught and and misrepresented in some cases it's just sort of in the dust in other cases something else has been put in its place like sovereignty in place of immut immutability and things like that and so we have to work harder in our generation to define and defend immutability and impassibility because it has not been well preserved for us, not just recently, but for some time really. And so when people are like, wow, this seems really difficult, this seems really hard, we acknowledge that, but we also kind of say, but it's not our fault. You know, <laughs> the, the generations before us didn't, didn't really keep this uh, as strong as they should have, although it's been in our confessions the whole time, uh, not all of the content of those confessions has been maintained at the level that it ought to be. Mm. That's great. Now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all want to say something at once. <laughs> well, I was just going to prove Sam wrong. I mean, I was just going to oh. basically say, Sam, I mean, come on, you had to have heard of like the biggest movie ever, duh, the Passion of the Christ. Well, <laughs> right. How, how do you explain that? How do you counter that, Mr. Bible man? Well, there's a very good answer to that question, and it is the incarnation, uh, where the human nature of Jesus is very passable uh, in certain senses. Uh, his body is passable. Uh, his soul is passable. Hebrews says that we have a high priest who can sympathize uh, with mm -hmm. us. And so in his human nature, body and soul, Jesus did endure severe passion for us. And that's the source of our salvation. Mm -hmm. Praise be to God. Mm -hmm. Amen. So if someone says, well, then there's no passion of Christ, we'd say, no, 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 please do not ever say mm -hmm. that. The passion mm -hmm. of the Christ is everything. And, and I know that you're, yeah. that I'm you're joking. Yeah, no. And I think that's really helpful for us in this series on theology proper, that we're talking about the nature of God, um, not <clears throat> the nature of man, you know, Christ as man incarnate, uh, the God in, but so I just wanted to kind of bring that up early on so that we kind of know when, when we're talking about God, yes. that we have to understand um, the two natures of Christ. So big time. Well, Blake, I was going to say we've often heard what this doctrine is not. Um, sure. You know, what are some what are some misrepresentations that you've heard uh, as far as what these things mean? In, in my personal experience, when this doctrine was being debated in the churches uh, that we had communion with in the past, um, one of the reasons people found it difficult to accept, one of the reasons that people found impassibility difficult to accept, was that they only seemed to hear the negative side of it, the negation, which is really all I've said so far, that God is without passions, he can't be acted upon, he can't be the patient of an agent, et cetera. And so <clears throat> that to them left God being um, just a, a stone, a cold, dead stone. Um, mm. You know, why pray to him? Why? I can't relate to him in any way, shape, or form, and he doesn't seem related to me in any way, shape, or form. If we just negate all these things to God, if we, if we say something like God has no emotions or, or something like that, um, God seems to be just empty and cold and distant. And so if that is all impassibility is, is just the negation, 
then people have a very t- hard time accepting that because they read their Bibles and God is abundantly merciful and he is mm-hmm. gracious and it talks about the wrath of God and such things and even God being provoked to wrath or God repenting. And so the pure negation of it seems entirely inconsistent with scripture. It seems inconsistent with experience. And so we have to be very careful that when we uh, teach impassibility, if we hyper-focus and narrow down on impassibility, it is a negation. It is the negation of passion with God, uh, passions in God. But what comes next is the a, a converse affirmation that what is in us a passion is in God a perfection. Mm. And then people say, oh, there it is. Okay, so for God, um, therefore, mercy is not a passion that he has been moved to by, by an agent, and he being the patient moved to mercy, but rather mercy is God's own goodness being given to the helpless from the fullness of his goodness because he wills to do so. So mm. God's mercy is he himself acting from the fullness of his own being to to communicate to a creature his goodness. And so when God pours out his goodness on a helpless creature, what do we call that? We call that mercy, but God has not been moved to that. Uh, God rather is merciful from his own mercy from his, the fullness of his own goodness and the infinity of his perfection. And so then people say, oh, okay, so we're not saying God has no mercy. We're not saying God has no love. Rather, we're saying that God is love and God is mercy. And so he can't be any more, nor can he be any less. It is his very being. And we see this in our confession of faith uh, when in chapter two, it, it uses a qualifier where it says that God is, um, let me find it real quick. It uses the word most. It says he is most just and most terrible. Uh, It says that he is most free and most absolute and most wise. And most terrible, of course, means his holiness (laughs) is a terror to to sinners. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Is most holy, most wise, most free. That important qualifier most is the flip side of impassibility, where God's uh, holiness and his wisdom and his freedom and and his mercy and his graciousness and his love are not things that he has been moved to because mm-hmm. if that were true he could be moved away from them and so he could not be most loving because someone else could be moved to be more loving than god and maybe god was moved to be less loving than he was before but rather god is love and god is mercy and so the the base question that we're discussing is what impassibility, impassibility is and isn't strictly defined, it's a negation that God is without passion. But that goes hand in hand with the fullness of the doctrine of God that Mm -hmm. then is free to affirm, then is clear to affirm that what is in us a passion is in God a perfection. And we we could discuss individual ones to show this again and again and again, whether it's love or mercy or justice, uh, etc., that in us... um, well, well, one one more thing is that we as creatures know affections or passions as creatures, and we tend to just take that experience and that reality and just put it on God, and and say God has has this. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is this mm-hmm. or that or the other thing. 
And then the theologian comes along and says, no, God doesn't have those things. And we say, what? What are you talking about? And the theologian then has to say, God doesn't have them in the way that you have them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we attribute things to God in a way that matches his essence. This is analogical uh, predication. We predicate things of God in proportion to his being. And we predicate things to man in proportion to man's being. So love predicated of God is his very essence. Love predicated of man, and that is no passion. Love predicated of man is a passion. You can move me to love. You can say, hey, I got you a bottle of bourbon, and now I love you more. (laughs) Or you can move me away from love, and you can say, I took away your bottle of bourbon that I had previously promised you, and now I don't love you as much, or maybe not at all. In fact, maybe I hate you. And as silly as that example is, that's actually the way we work. Like, that's really how we are. Green light, oh, I'm happy. Red light, I'm angry. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, I keep going back to the example in my literature and, and anytime I discuss this, I love the commercial that the Snickers bars make where they <laughs> yeah. say, you're not you when you're hungry. And they, <laughs> chase, so they show someone angry, hangry, you know, hungry, angry, and they're being ornery and they're like a whole different person. Then they eat, they get some sugar in their system and whatever else, you know, nuts and ganache. Isn't that called like ganache? Whatever. <laughs> and then... And then they're they're back to themselves. They've been changed by a candy bar, truly, literally. And we're saying God's not like that. Yes. God's love is <clears throat> he. It is what he is. If he ceases to be loving, then he ceases to be. Mm. Uh, if he ceases to be merciful, then he ceases to be. Because those are all love and mercy and 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 the like are man creatures experiencing God's pure perfection diversely it is one simple god is one simple god and his simple perfection is experienced by us in a diverse manner and in a succession of moments in time and we use our human passions and affections to name those effects that we experience so we call that love or we call that mercy or we call that justice because that's our experience and we speak through our experience we speak through what we know but we have to to filter that when we predicate of God and understand it carefully and not reduce him to the language of human emotion and human language. And so sorry, I went really long about yeah, that, but but we, you have you <laughs> have to great. have the two. You have to have both sides, what impassibility is a negation and what it is not. It's not such a negation that God has no love, and it is not such a negation that God has no mercy, et cetera. <clears throat> no, rather that leads to God's uh, his positive attributes of holiness and love and and mercy and such things. Uh, okay, so God doesn't need a Snickers. That's what I got from from all of that. <laughs> True. So he okay, does but not. God doesn't. God doesn't body need a, <laughs> without passion. He doesn't need a Snickers, but you know, you you squirmed out from under my Passion of the Christ, you know, um, attempt. But what about this, uh, smart guy? First Samuel fifteen. It says twice in there that God regretted or repented of making Saul king. I mean, maybe the Snickers bar is not going to change God, but Saul seemed to change God's mind. So there. That chapter is one of the best (laughs) examples for bringing this up, because at the end of the chapter, it says God is not a man that he should lie or change his mind. So the way you read the first verses is affected by the way you read the final verses of of that Mm -hmm. chapter. And knowing that God is not a man, we read that language uh, 
carefully. And I don't know if we should jump straight to how to read that language now or if you want to come back to that. Uh, I was going to say, we'll cycle to that in a second because I do want to get to exegesis and hermeneutics. Um, definitely. It's an important question. Let me just say, oh yeah, absolutely. Eric may bring it up a little bit in jest, but it's a 100% legit question because is, people will open their Bible and say, this is the word of God. Like, yeah. please, I'm not yeah. trying to to challenge you. Please just help me understand this. You know, yeah, I'm, not, need- I'm actually not trying to make fun of anybody. You know, I, I, I wrestled with this doctrine. Like I, sure. I understand, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. you know, the difficulty in wrapping your mind around this and it, it, it oh, yeah. it's difficult. I'm not trying to make fun of anyone in particular. It's more just, oh, yeah. I'm just. Oh no, it it bothered me as much as like, there's a meme about this. It's like, Ooh, I just discovered the doctrines of grace and I'm all excited about Calvinism. And it's like old reformed guy. Oh, you're going to love the doctrine that says God doesn't have emotions. The what? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) But, but that was me. I was like, wait, like the same kind of visceral, like, I don't like this. This doesn't sit with me. What about free? Like that kind of emotional reaction that I had to Calvinism was very similarly uh, manifest when I learned about the doctrine of impassibility, because I, I think it was Dr. Dolezal who talks about in his lectures, he he will start one of his lectures to his students by saying, God is not passionate about you in the slightest or something to that extent. <laughs> it's just like everyone goes, what are you talking about? Like, because that's all we hear. That's how we've been catechized as a, a, a Western church, because we lack, you know, Keech's catechism or the Westminster standards or uh, the Heidelberg, like we're not being steeped in this tradition. And so, Sam, that brings me to a, a question of historical theology here, because when we talk to people, our peers, especially the new Calvinists, but even non-Calvinists, and we mention this idea that God is without passions, people freak out as we've as we've talked about here. And it seems so foreign and bizarre, like what kind of like Aristotelian or Platonic philosophy are you imbibing like you you've you've made this impersonal god of the philosopher and transposed him on the scripture how dare you it's kind of the reaction i get from you know my more educated uh christian friends so i was wondering if you could give us a little survey historically is this some new thing that like you and richard barcelos and james dolezal have just decided we're gonna we're gonna push this out and you know republish the 1689 like what I'm joking, obviously, but what is some of the historical context to this uh, for for our listeners to get a bigger picture of of what's going on here? Yes, if you read uh, Church Fathers, if you read the Medievals, uh, if you read especially Aquinas, you will find the doctrine of divine simplicity and immutability and impassibility. Uh, And then if you read the Reformed uh, and the Lutherans in in the 16th century, uh, and the the Anglicans, a little bit of an anachronistic term, but the Church of England, uh, you will find the doctrine of divine immutability and impassibility built on some divine simplicity. Mm. And the confessions of faith from the 16th and 17th centuries, you will find these doctrines. And so it's really the moderns who have to answer the question, what have you done with this doctrine? The church has handed it down for over a millennia plus centuries, and it's someone lost it. Okay, who who lost it? What did we do? And so it's not it's really the modern church that has to answer the question, what what are you doing about this? Where where is it? And I've appreciated the fact that the modern what I've perceived as a more modern retrieval recovery of this doctrine has been pan-denominational uh in many yes. cases. There have been Presbyterians, there have been Baptists of the more and less reformed sort. Uh there have been um Anglicans, and there have been 
Roman Catholics uh, who mm. have been intentionally defending uh, this doctrine and and its related doctrines. Really, a whole doctrine of God uh, has is being refreshed and re-argued and reinvestigated, researched. Um, and so, historically speaking, you'll find it in the confessions, you'll find it in the systematic theologies of the Reformation and the post-Reformation period, and it it drops off. It drops off not long after the the 17th century, I would say, with the Enlightenment. It does mm. huge damage to the doctrine of God. And also, it's sad to say, but it's the truth that after the seven, after about the year 1700, in England at least, thinking of the English-speaking church in England especially, the, the Presbyterian denomination and the congregational denomination, they, they died. They died to Unitarianism. Their doctrine of God just they withered and they they almost became nothing really, and the Baptists some of them survived. John Gill really did a lot of work to to keep alive mm. robust systematic theology in that time. But the Baptists suffered greatly too. They just survived a bit a bit better in that case, uh, and American Presbyterians uh, survived a bit better than the than the English ones. But my Presbyterian history is not not great, so consult others on that. But there was a gen. What I'm saying is there was a general, massive decline in in Protestant doctrine of God um, after the 1700s, and Unitarianism was just one of the major catalysts in destroying it in the Enlightenment in general. And impassibility just did not really make it through that. And even the more modern systematic theologies uh, often were not as well researched on this as they should be either uh, mm. as much as we appreciate and enjoy them and one of the mistakes we have to be careful not to make when we you know wag our finger at people from the past is <laughs> we live in a moment where we have instant universal access to sources that's why we're getting this resourcement this retrieval this repristination we'll use whatever word you want it that's because all i have to do is click 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 and oh i'm reading every person I want to read on this doctrine mm -hmm. from the 16th and 17th centuries and elsewhere in history, our access to resources is, is giving us a wealth, a treasure trove of information that although our forefathers of the Presbyterian and other denominations, although they had great resources and were men of in, incredible learning that still would put us to shame, we mm. have advantages that they didn't have mm. in our access to sources and our ability to search them. Do you know how amazing it is to search <laughs> on the internet or any database? It's, it's like unheard of. It's literally unheard of. It's amazing. So we'll we'll give our theological forefathers a bit of a break for not exactly keeping this doctrine as pristine as they should have because sure. they didn't have access to all the sources that we do. But that then places a responsibility on us because we do have those sources. My mm. own personal story again, back in 2015, when our churches were really debating this, if you asked me back then about God without passions, I wouldn't have really known what to tell you. Mm. I wrote a, a paper on immutability in seminary, and I deleted that from my computer like a year ago where it will never be found by anybody <laughs> because it was bad. It was bad. It was not good. Uh, and I thought it was so reformed. I thought it was so this and that and the other thing. So when it came to God without passions, I thought, 
this is in our confession, but I'm not really sure what it means. Mm -hmm. And so I did extensive searching and reading in 16th and 17th century sources. And that's what led to my, my book, God Without Passions, a reader is saying, okay, I did all this work to collect sources. I want to make it as easy as possible for other people to benefit from this. Here, yes. I put it all in a book, I typed it out for you. There you go. You've got it. Uh, I wanted to make it easy for people because I benefited so much from reading, okay, that's what this meant. It means something very clear. It means something very defined. It's exegetically argued. It fits within the system as a whole. Like it all makes sense. Mm. But my own understanding went to the confession was like, well, I'm not sure about that. You know, does that really fit with this? Because I was an idiot. Uh, and <laughs> doing some reading uh, on the sources from the day, they, they go through it all and you say, man, I wish I had known that. I wish that that had been taught to me more clearly. Uh, and so we, this takes us back to how it, it, we have to do more work in our time because we're retrieving something that really has been neglected, if not abused, disused, if not abused. Indeed. You know, it's funny you were setting, I thought you were setting us up there for our sponsor plug because this week's episode of Distilling Theology is sponsored by Lagos 9, one of the most powerful Bible research tools available to scholars today. And for our listeners right now, they're offering a special discount on their packages. So head over to lagos.com slash distilling theology to claim your 10% offer plus five free books. Justin, I've been really enjoying it to what Sam was saying. I can literally pull up the Reform Dogmatics from Gerhardus Voss, I can pull up Calvin's commentaries and I can search all of it digitally at the touch of a finger. And it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I've actually been using it uh, in our episodes. So highly recommend. But that's just a word from this week's sponsor. But Sam set that up so perfectly. So I had to sneak that in right when we had a chance. But <laughs> as you mentioned, this doctrine of God, I grew up in a Socinian Unitarian background that was not Jehovah's Witness, but it was kind of similar hermeneutically. And so what you're saying resonates with me deeply as far as how this had deeply affected the Western English speaking church and how those frames of argument in many ways are the same frames of argument that people use against the other classical doctrines of God, not just the Trinity. I, you know, I, I was having flashbacks when you were saying, you know, the, the passage in Samuel, well, it says right here, this is the word of God. He's angry. You know, the verse that you cited, God is not a man that he should lie. That was one of my proof texts. God is not a man. And this isn't an episode on the Trinity, but I just, I, I mentioned that to say that these doctrines are interrelated. And so if we're going to consistently hold and affirm that God is eternally existent, one being, three persons, if we're going to consistently hold this, then we, we need the classical doctrines because once we start to lose them, we end up in oneness Pentecostalism or Unitarianism or all these weird things. It's not a fluke that when we remove these pieces of theology proper from our doctrine of God, that we start to crumble at the base and we lose God himself. So that's just from my own little experience there. But uh, you, you, rent, you mentioned it a handful of times there, and I thought it was uh, worth bringing up that point. So it, it kind of resonates with a quote that I read uh, just the other day. Um, this is biblical Christianity is confessional Christianity. Every believer has a choice. They either prescribe to one of the confessions, which uh, is tried and true, or they prescribe their own personal confession of faith that they continually make up as they go along. So regarding those doctrines, like you said, they are necessary doctrines to keep us um, yes. from erring into weird heterodoxic areas or heresy. 
Yeah. And bringing up the confessions reminds me of something that I wanted to, to say about this is that I mentioned how the moderns have to answer the question, what have you done with this doctrine handed down through the ages? Mm. In reformed circles, I'm thinking of 1689, Westminster Confession, Three Forms of Unity. We we know very well that our confessions represent in many ways, in many places, a very anti-Roman Catholic doctrine where yeah. it's it's reformed. Yeah. yeah. And the, the Pope is the Antichrist, and he has Satan through the Pope and through that absolute authority has established all kinds of corruptions of practice and doctrine, et cetera. So the confessions are clear about in doctrine of God, doctrine of, or not doctrine of God, doctrine of justification, doctrine of the church, yes. and many other areas, we reject the errors of Rome. They're not shy about rejecting the errors of Rome. This brings us to chapter two of the doctrine of God and the Holy Trinity. Guess what? Roman Catholics could easily confess chapter two. Chapter two mm-hmm. is very much a, we have received this from the fathers and the medieval church, they didn't change it. They quote Mm. Aquinas again and again and again without reservation, without qualification. They don't even, they don't apologize for it. They think he's right. They agree Mm. with the classical doctrine of God. And so chapter two of our confessions uh, is receiving it and confessing it, moving on. It's not an anti-Roman Catholic uh, mm. chapter in any way, shape, or form that I'm aware of. And so that just adds a further burden for Reformed Christians. Okay, we still confess these documents. Why is it that we who confess these things, some of us have deviated, some of some mm. of us have denied even some of these things, perhaps ignorantly, perhaps unintentionally, but we need to realize how connected this doctrine is not just to the fullness of the system and the confession, but how connected it is historically to Mm -hmm. the church going back uh, throughout its history. I think that's an important point to say, how much does chapter two represent Reformation? Mm, (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, that was great. That was a good answer. So, so Sam, in more depth then, how would you, you know, read passages where it says that God regrets or God repents or, or his wrath is provoked or anything like that. As a matter of method, when approaching the scriptures here, passages that describe God's being take precedence over passages that describe God's actions or the things that man experiences from God. And so we Richard Barcellus likes to say, you don't just count texts, you you weigh them. Mm-hmm. So, okay, you could add up a 100-proof text for something, but one text that really addresses something that weighs heavier than the other 100 can still tip the balance. Mm-hmm. And so, h- historically speaking, divines have looked at Exodus 3.14 and the, and the divine name, I am that I am. And they have looked at that, and they've also looked at the other divine names that God uses uh, to say, what does what do God's um, his what do his names communicate to us about himself? Obviously, he names himself in the scriptures. He gives mm-hmm. us these names. What do they mean? And the most personal, I'm not sure if that's the best word, but the most personal name for God that he gives is I am that I am or shortened into, you know, Jehovah or Yahweh and Yah. And this name comes from the Hebrew word to be. And so if God reveals himself as the one who is that he is, 
and he uses the the Hebrew verb to be to as the root of his name, then he is telling us that he is the self-existent one. He he is the one who create. And you talked about a seity in the last episode, I believe. Uh, this is everything right here. I am that I am. Nothing yes. created me. Nothing mm-hmm. made me. I simply am. I am. And there is no other, as in Isaiah it says many times, as opposed mm-hmm. to the false gods. False gods, where they come from? Someone chopped down a tree or they hewed, hewed a stone and blah, blah, blah. God is different. God is mm-hmm. I am. He is I am that I am. And so these passages about God's being establish our most fundamental understanding of, of who God is. We cannot know what God is because it's impossible to comprehend his essence. The most mm-hmm. we can say is that God is an essence, but there's no genus uh, of which God's essence is a species. So we just say God's an <laughs> essence and we stop there. We say he is such an essence that is because he is. He is I am that I am. And that establishes divine simplicity and divine aseity right there. If you accept divine simplicity and divine aseity, immutability and impassibility are unavoidable consequence. They are necessary consequences mm-hmm. of divine simplicity and divine aseity. So as students of the scriptures, we come to Exodus 3.14 or the other names of God, such as Yahweh and Yah, and of course El and Elohim and, and other names uh, are also important, but his most, what we would often call most personal, this is the name by which I am to be remembered throughout your generations. We say, okay, this God's telling us to take this seriously. We, we make that fundamental. Once that has mm-hmm. been accepted, uh, it, it affects the way that we read other passages. And so we then, we also look at Malachi 3, I, the Lord, change mm-hmm. not, or yes. James 1, 17, in God, there is no variation or even shadow of change. Uh, we And we look at passages like that and we say, okay, these describe God's being. And then we look at 1 Samuel 15 as God says, I am not a man. Or Numbers, I believe it's Numbers 23, where the story of, of Balaam, God again says, I am not a man, or God is not a, God is not a man. Mm. We say, okay, God is not a man. God is, I am that I am, self-existent, simple, um, immutable, impassable. Therefore, how do we understand other scriptures that, let's, let's be fully honest, let's not beat around the bush, other scriptures that seem to contradict that, other scriptures that seem to imply that God does change, seem to imply mm-hmm. that God is moved, excuse me, or acted upon by his creatures, such as uh, the Lord regretting that he made Saul or the Lord repented of destroying Nineveh. Uh, that kind of language is, is used and so the the way in which to understand those things, there's a variety of approaches that we can use. One of them is to remember that based on God's decree and God's eternity, what God God's decree is also one. He has one decree. There's not many decrees. He has one decree that can be distinguished diversely. And so we can talk about within God's decree, creation and and uh, providence and, and redemption and such things. But God has one decree, and he is accomplishing his one decree in all history. And we as Reformed Christians confess that he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So in eternity, meaning outside of time, not just like way back on a timeline, but independent of time, yeah. without time, God decrees in himself all things whatsoever comes to pass. But we, the creature, we live on that timeline of succession. Moment A, moment B, or, you know, 
it's 703, then it's 704, then it's 705. We live on a timeline of succession. For God being eternal, he's not, there is no succession in him. It's another reason why there can be no, no mutation or, or passion. With no succession in God, what we experience in succession is the unfolding of God's eternal decree. And so God decrees to threaten Nineveh. God decrees that his threat will be the means of Nineveh turning to him and, and repenting. And God decrees that that will then lead to him not destroying them. And so as humans, we look at that succession and that unfolding in time, and we see it happen over a span. We cannot take that temporal span and attribute it to God. When we, we have a doctrine of God and we have a doctrine of the decree, so what are we doing? What, what, like, think about this for a second. Rather, we would say, no, this is the outworking of his decree, but we can use our human language to describe it. And so we can call that repentance because what is repentance? Repentance is fundamentally a, an inversion or a reversal. In repentance, you're going this way, then you stop, you turn around, and you go the other way. That is what repentance is. For us, we're going this way. We're confronted by something. We learn something new, or we're threatened with punishment, or we're convicted of, of what we were doing. We're convicted. I shouldn't be going this way. We change our mind. I'm going to go the other way, maybe with regret, maybe with, with misery, maybe with sadness, and we go back the other way. That's repentance. We hate our sin, and we forsake it. God doesn't say, oh, the Ninevites repented. Uh, uh, well, I <laughs> guess I won't destroy them. No, you see, you can't attribute the passion of repentance to God, but mm. you can call that reversal, you can call that inversion repentance. God repented and did not destroy Nineveh. He threatened them as he had decreed to do so, or he caused them to hear his, his threat through Jonah. Uh, he, he moved them through that threat to repentance and he did not destroy them. We as humans look at that and we see a succession, we see a development, we see a change, but the change is in creation. The change is in the theater of God's decree. It is not in God himself. It's the same thing with Saul. God decrees to raise him up. God decrees to, to permit him to sin, namely not killing Agag. And when he does not kill Agag and wipe out the Amalekites, God says, therefore the kingdom has been taken from you. And God decreed to permit that. And God decreed to remove him from the kingship. God mm -hmm. didn't say, oh, man, I sent Saul, and he totally screwed it up. All right, <laughs> we're going to have to remove him from the throne. Mm. No. He didn't call an audible. <laughs> yeah, he didn't call an audible. He decreed all those things. And so that's why First <laughs> Samuel 15 ends with God is not a man that he should lie mm. or change his mind. Yes. Right. So we we're told that what Saul did was grievous. We're told that what Saul did was wicked in, in God's eyes, but we're also told that it didn't change God's mind. He wasn't taken by surprise. Sorry, you were going to say something, Eric. Oh, no, I was just going to reaffirm what you were saying, that as you said, we can't attribute the passion of, let's say, repentance to God, mm -hmm. but we can use language of repentance to describe the the unfolding of God's decree in time. And we have to do that because we're creatures. You know, God stoops down to us and speaks to us in our language, as I think it was Calvin said something, he babbles at us like, like we're children, yeah. <laughs> and he gets down at our level, basically. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that's what we see in his scripture, um, that in the mm -hmm. same chapter, 
you know, first Samuel 15, we see it saying that God re that he repents of making uh, Saul king twice, but it, also at the very end, he also affirms, I am God and I do not repent. Mm. But he's trying to say something about his nature there and help us, as you were saying, understand what we, what came before and what we just read, that, that this is a reversal in uh, what he was doing with Israel, but not because something acted upon him or something changed him or convinced him otherwise, but as Israel saw history unfolding, his decree unfolding, there had to be some sort of language for that that we creatures can understand. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, I think it's helpful um, talking about, you know, anthropomorphisms versus anthropo, uh, anthropopathisms, right? Which is just another way of saying, describing physical features uh, about God using using imagery. God doesn't have physical features. Um, you know, God has a face or God's hands or saying that God has wings, uh, in scripture, um, those are used to illustrate something to help us understand something about who God is, but we read those and don't, we don't think of God as having literal hands or literal right. wings or literal face or anything like that. But mm. we struggle with this, these anthropopathisms, which are the attribution of human emotions to God. Mm. Um, mm. for some reason, those slip by our radar and we kind of take those in and think of God as someone whose emotions change when it's no different than describing physical attributes or attributing physical attributes to God for our benefit of understanding something about who he is. When we know those aren't literal, um, we, we should also understand that God doesn't literally repent, at least not in the way that we understand repentance, but that mm-hmm. his decree involves the unfolding of things in history and in time. And so it looks like repentance, but God himself has not acted upon or changed. So. 100%. That's super good. And I do have a question for you, Sam, about the complexity or simplicity of the decree of God. But before we do that, we'll, we'll, we'll throw that into overtime. Uh, I do have a question for you before that, which is for our listeners, the person listening to this, this is the first time they've heard about this mm-hmm. crazy idea, which I hope it's not the first time because we've talked about it in past episodes, but maybe this is the first episode they let it on. Uh, what is, where, where's a good starting place if this is the first time someone's hearing about impassibility? And then, you know, a, a book to read and then a, maybe another level for them to do if, if they're familiar with it and they want to they dive a little bit deeper into it. What are some, some books that you would recommend? Yeah, I'll recommend three books. And forgive me for the fact that two of them will be mine. Um, <laughs> It depends on what you want to study. So if you want just mm. an introduction to a divine impassibility, I wrote a primer, God Without Passions, a primer, and that's just about divine impassibility. It's wonderful. If you want to study divine impassibility in the context of the doctrine of God as a whole, but still on a primer level, I wrote a book called Deity and Decree, uh, which covers the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, and the yeah, there it is, and the doctrine of mm-hmm. the decree. And impassibility has its place there within the system as a whole. But still on a primer level, if you want to understand impassibility on a a higher level, a deeper level, I would suggest James Dolezal's book, uh, God Without Parts, where that's really about Mm. simplicity, but that ties in 100% with with impassibility. He also has an article called God Without Passions in um, the Journal of the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies, and also his book, All That Is in God. Uh, James Dolezal's book would also be very good on this subject. Um, that's the conference that he did here at this church, at our church, and he stayed with me uh, during that time. Mm. Um, so yeah, so 
Dr. Dolezal's books would be more advanced reading and argumentation than, than my own. And so it just kind of depends on the level where you're at. Um, those would be resources I would recommend. And um, yeah, for impassibility, that's what I would say. Well, you already mentioned earlier too, you're, you're God without passions, a reader. So looking yeah. for more historical, what, what, um, you know, church fathers, what, what um, people throughout church history wrote about this, you compiled all that. So just reminding people that that's also a great resource. Yeah. That the reader just to be clear is focused on 16th and 17th century sources. Mm. So you won't get medievals and, and fathers in there, um, but you will get uh, English language, uh, 16th and 17th century Protestant sources. Awesome. I think before we completely wrap up though, there's at least one more question. Oh, Justin, what were you going to ask? You were about to no, say you something, first. I think. Well, okay. I was just going to ask Sam to wrap this all up with a nice bow and, and what is the, what's the significance of this? What's the importance? What's the mm. practical nature of this doctrine that people should walk away from this podcast, what they should be thinking about, you know, praying about, um, this subject. Why, why I see it as a comfort and I know why I see it as a comfort, but I'd love to hear why this is a truly comforting and important doctrine for our, um, um, assurance and, and our prayer life and so many other things. So, but Justin, if you had something else you want to ask before something that was a little more broad and wrapping it up. No. Okay. Go for it. it it's a great question and it's an important question. The, the, so what question, you know, mm-hmm. well, we all have human relationships, uh, marriage or otherwise, and we love people and some of them love us, but just, thinking especially in terms of of spouse there are things that we can do that affect their love for us mm-hmm. and there are things that they can do that affect our love for them and and there's many times when spouses are not very loving to other spouses and they get mad at each other and they don't forgive one another and they sometimes do things just to spite one another um, this happens in friendships of course it happens in all human relationships where we we do mean things uh, because of what the other person did or did not do, we, we are very much changed in relation to them. We are constantly changing. And it, it is sadly true of us that you're not you when you're hungry. And so mm. when we realize God is not like that, it becomes a great comfort. Um, the scriptures tell us again and again, they command us again and again in the Psalms, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And then they tell us, for his steadfast love endures forever. Mm-hmm. His steadfast love endures forever. And we have these, these ontological undergirdings, these underpinnings that hold this up. Well, how, how can I trust that his steadfast love will endure forever? Well, the, the Apostle John says God is love. It is his very being. The one who is I am that I am, he is love. And so therefore, as we already said, he can no more cease to be loving than he can cease to be. Therefore, mm-hmm. I can always go to him. I don't have to move him to love me. I don't have to to keep him loving me. I don't have to to sort of maintain that relationship in order for him to love me. He loves me from the fullness of his love. 
And when God says in Malachi, I, the Lord, change not, what's next? He says, therefore, you are not consumed, O mm. sons of Jacob. <laughs> they're like, oh, why'd you have to call me that? You know, uh, he says, I don't change. And so mm. you're not consumed. If I was like the gods of the nations, if I was like you, I'd say, you're done. I'm sick of you. You've never worshipped me the way that I'm that I've commanded you to worship. You've never given me the glory that I deserve. You've never been thankful to me for all of the blessings that I've given to you. You haven't believed the promises that I've given to you. You've been a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. In our relationships, we'd say, "I'm done with you. Goodbye." Mm -hmm. But God says, "I, the Lord, change not. Therefore, you." although you are sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Mm. And in, in Lamentations, we read that his mercies are new every morning. Mm. Every morning, great is thy faithfulness. That's not just a hymn, that's scripture. That's the mm. word of God. I know his mercies are new. He helps the helpless because he does so from the fullness of his own goodness, from the fullness of his own love. And so yes. I don't need to say, please, won't you help me? Please won't you be my helper, oh God. He says, that's who I am. Mm. I am the helper of the helpless. I Come am on. the most merciful one. I My mercies are new every morning, and my faithfulness is indeed great. And the scriptures praise God for these things. And so as we see passions removed from God, and we begin to see his perfections more clearly, then our relationship with him is improved because we praise him for his perfections and we rest and tr we rest in and trust those perfections his goodness and his love and his mercy and his justice all these things they're not going to change and i'm not going to change them he may discipline me he may cause me to to not feel the joy of his face at all times but this is what do the scriptures say? The one whom he loves, he reproves. The one mm. whom he loves, he disciplines. So even mm -hmm. his discipline, even if he causes me to feel diverse things, he remains the same. And he is loving me. Even when he mm. permits affliction in my life, it's not because he forgot me and forgot to make everything okay in my life. It's not because he's mad at me. I'm going to send some, some bad things his way. No, it's because in his wisdom, and in his paternal love for me, he has, he has decreed that this is good for him. It will bring me glory. It will sanctify him. It will prepare him for heaven. And so mm. even God's discipline, even the things that we view as negative, he has not changed. He's not mad at me. He's not a, a resentful uh, relationship partner. He is my God. He is my father. He is my rock and my refuge. He is my salvation. And he, mm. because he does not change, therefore I am not consumed. And so our, our trust, our willingness to, to pray every day, because, you know, I remember as, as a kid, sometimes you, you're just, you've been, you've been a real pain in the neck all day <laughs> and your parents are mad at you. <laughs> And you're just waiting for them to not be mad at you. You know they love you, but you're waiting for them to not be mad at you. Even that, God is not like that. It's not like, well, I am mad at you, but I still love you. No, mm. God God is not like that. He loves us at all times, and he doesn't have that kind of anger like, you made me mad. God, if he allows us, if he makes us feel disciplined, it is because he loves us. So every every which way we look at human relationships and see imperfection, we see people who, who put one another away and who reject each other and lie to each other and hurt each other and all sorts of things, we, we rejoice in the fact that our God is not like that and he will never be like that. 
And it just pushes us back to the Psalms. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he mm. is good for mm. his steadfast love endures forever. Well, that's an episode any if I've ever heard one. Wow. Reach. <laughs> oh man, that is so good. Thank you, Sam, for, for spending time with us. We're going to spend a little bit more time in overtime, but before we do that, Justin, how can the good folks listening, uh, get a hold of us, keep up with what we're doing and, uh, all that good stuff. Yeah. Sorry. I just saw a spider crawl down the wall and then jump onto my, my decanter over there. And I'm not sure what to do about it. He's thirsty. You Let should him shoot have a it. Drink. <laughs> <laughs> Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> Guys, if you want to check out more, head on over to social media, check us out on facebook.com slash distilling theology. You can uh, join our group. You can, uh, like our page and you will be you will be hopefully um uh, in good company we we have a lot of fun over there it is the singularly most sage stage reformed facebook group on the internet uh and i say that truly i really believe that um so check us out there also check us out on instagram.com slash distilling theology if you find us there uh great pictures of books great pictures of whiskeys uh some very interesting conversations uh in in our uh, comment sections there um so head on over there check us out there and um yeah i mean we have a twitter don't bother we don't use it i mean <laughs> come on what is, what is this uh we don't have a tiktok or anything so please by all means stay off of there um <laughs> but uh yeah to theology.com you can get um links to all the social media and also all of our podcasts there uh as well as links to giveaways and all kinds of great stuff so yeah, check us out there. Uh, Blake, somehow, some way, some form, we have managed to continue to be a part of what? <laughs> you know, I think it's because we keep having the audacity to just keep inviting <laughs> on people that know what they're talking about. But we are still proud members of the Society of Reform Podcasters, a network of doctrinally sound podcasts from a reform perspective. The roll call includes Assurance of Pardon, The Bobcast, Christ in Context, Distilling Theology, Fast God Stuff, Five Points Church Planting Podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude, Reformed Brotherhood, Reformed Pilgrims, Restless, Seeker Start, Sippin' on Theology, Steady Anchor, and The Particular Baptist Podcast. You can get all these shows, subscribe, and get the entire back catalog of all these programs at reformedpodcasts.com. And also to our, our topic tonight, uh, Dr. James Dolezal was on the Particular Baptist podcast recently, and you should definitely go check that interview out when you have time. And Justin, if folks want to hear the extended conversation, if they want to see all of our gaffes and goofs and, and mess ups and hear the rest of this episode that we're about to jump into, where can they go? Sorry, I'm super paranoid right now. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of spiders. <laughs> uh, head on over to patreon.com. If you want to see Justin shoot a spider. If you want to see me Patreon. break out some... I'm about to go get the AR and take care of this um, Yeah, so uh, come on over uh, to Silly Theology uh, on Patreon. Check us out. Uh, $4.99 a month, you will get bonus content, video content, early releases, extended conversations, and all kinds of fun stuff there. $14.99 a month, you will also get some uh, bonus uh, wares, as it were. You'll get a, a really cool um, patron-only mug, as well as some other stuff coming up in the future. So uh, join us on Patreon, uh, and maybe you'll see me shoot a spider. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? I don't know, man. Guys, join us next week on Distilling Theology, where we're going to be hanging out with Dr. Adonis Vidu, speaking about the inseparable operations of the persons of the Trinity. And we're going to be sipping Mr. Black coffee liqueur, as he's going to be drinking an espresso with us. So 
Join us. You're not going to want to miss it. All right. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Woo! Well, this got exciting real fast. <laughs> I'm about to... If I see this thing pop up, he's getting the Valley of Vision. <laughs> he's, you're going you're gonna to transport him to the Valley of Dry Bones? He literally right now, crawled the down the... the agent and Justin's the patient. <laughs> Ooh, nice. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Distilling Theology. We hope you enjoyed it and enjoy this sneak preview of the extended conversation, which is available exclusively at patreon.com slash distilling theology. When he tells me who he is, uh, that's more definitive than the actions that I see playing out and described in, in human language. Yes. So we can be fair to them and say, okay, let's let's interrogate this. Let's consider it. But the very idea of doing it is not illegitimate. That's just systematic theology. Mm-hmm. Right. So necessary consequences like sprinkling babies right i'm so glad to hear you say (laughs) i didn't bring that up (laughs) no i know you didn't that's that's the uh the excuse that's (laughs) so often that's amazing (laughs) no no we're not we're we're not rehashing excuse we're not rehashing episode 39 although hey um, no we got we got the same one here it's three to one we outnumber you we're gonna convert you right now right now although on episode trilogy of baptists here there is a trilogy of baptists but my favorite baptists